0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. A few years back, China's top internet companies saw a series of stunning mergers. Today's ride-hailing giant Didi, for example, was born out of a merger between number one and number two players at the time, Didi and Kuaidi, as was the dominant classifieds platform, a merger between 58 and Ganzi Wang. And of course, the newly IPO'd Meituan was really formed from a merger between two food delivery giants, Meituan and Dianping, the story for which we replayed for you recently.
1: It almost became a playbook of sorts. Find a large addressable market, raise a ton of money, fight bitterly for market share, get to number one or number two in the market, and then boom, merge with your nemesis, you know, the rival you've spent all your energy to crush. But then you become the overwhelming leader for that category. These are deals that may make business sense, but
0: they're difficult to execute. I mean, they're pretty sensitive conversations. How do you even start the conversation? And how to get all the parties on board? You have celebrity CEOs... You have the issue of Tencent versus Alibaba, because usually one is backed by Tencent and the other is backed by Alibaba. And then, of course, there's always a lot of greedy
1: VCs. And yet one man has been able to do all of this. All those mega deals we mentioned above, done by the same person. He's like the merger whisperer, a true master investment banker. And not just in
0: mergers and acquisitions either, because... Balfan and his firm, China Renaissance, have been doing IPOs for a while now, and they're also
1: leaning into it in a big way. Yep, remember Pinduoduo, one of the better-performing Chinese IPOs this year, even though controversial. The bookrunners for their IPO were Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, CICC, and listed below as an underwriter. Yep, you guessed it, China Renaissance.
0: But why talk about the firm today? That's because this tech-focused boutique investment bank actually went public itself on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange a few weeks ago on September 27th. Unfortunately, though, it promptly dropped 19% to a market cap of about $1.7 billion, where it
1: continues to hover today. As many reporters have noted, it's kind of ironic that Balfun got the demand for his own company so wrong, even though advising on IPOs is part of his core business. But actually, today's episode is less about that deal and more about the man himself, because Baofeng's career basically is the China tech industry. Everyone who is anyone in China tech is connected to him or has done business with him. Seriously. Without further ado then, we present to you Baofeng and his hua xing Zi Ben, China Renaissance. President's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after a whole night banking, I say I still
0: want
1: to do it. Hi, everyone. We are Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. And I'm your other co host, Ray Ma. We wanted to say a special thanks today to Carol Yin, who was our producer for the past few months and who was instrumental in helping us to get to where we are today. Best of luck, Carol, in your new endeavors. And to our new listeners over at Deal Street Asia, hello and do tweet at us for Tech Buzz swag. We just made some new stuff. If you enjoy listening to us, please take the time to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, Ray, who is this guy, Balfun? Well, if you ask Balfun to describe himself in a few words, it would probably be hmm, short, bald, Shanghainese dude who loves F1 and MMA.
0: Why? What? What does that have to do with anything?
1: It has to do with everything. And I'm only half kidding, because that is basically what he has on his Weibo profile. I did make one modification. I added the word short, but the rest really is his actual reputation and how he's described in the media. And also, as you now know, how he refers to himself. I mean, the guy loves F1 and MMA. What does that tell you, listeners? He loves speed and he likes to fight and he fights to win. His entire persona is all about being fierce and fearless. Even the baldness, honestly, is kind of synonymous with badassery in Chinese culture.
0: Okay, I do remember you saying before that he's shorter than you. And for our listeners who don't know you, you are?
1: Uh, five, one and a half inches. That's 157 centimeters for those of you on the metric system. So yeah, I'm, I'm short. Well, maybe Ba and I are the same height. I might have been on heels when I met him. But even by Shanghainese standards, he is kind of small. And yet he's been a towering figure in China tech. Exactly right. Whatever he lacks in size, he has more than made up for in ambition and aggression. And you know what happens if you're that petite? You stand out. You are memorable. Obviously, being diminutive in stature doesn't prevent you from succeeding. I mean, we only have to look at Masayoshi-san for an counterexample. But hey, I do think it matters. Probably. Although, it definitely never stopped 47-year-old fun,
0: because even from very young, he was a leader. According to his own account, he was born into a diplomatic family and sent to boarding school early. He also got to travel abroad alongside his parents, something which was unheard of at that time in China.
1: No question about it. He grew up in the upper echelons of society, and I'm really sure that helped him in his career later on. After attending high school in the U.S., he went to top-ranked Fudan University in Shanghai, and then back abroad again to the Norwegian School of Management for further study.
0: Yeah, it seems he's no stranger to moving around, because after school, he landed on Wall Street, first at Morgan Stanley in London, Credit Suisse in New York, and back again at Morgan Stanley in Hong Kong doing investment banking.
1: I'm super curious what that was like, because when Balfein left Morgan Stanley in 2000 to become chief strategy officer of Asia Info, which was a telecom services provider like every other internet company back then, that was right when the internet bubble was bursting. He
0: stayed there until 2004, and then broke out on his own to start China Renaissance. He just loves the word Renaissance, and the Chinese name of the company is a literal translation, Huaxing Ziben. The name is exactly what you think it refers to, the nationalistic ideal that China was on the cusp of a rebirth, and specifically for investment banker Baofan, the conviction that China was going to produce its own great investment bank, and since that firm didn't exist yet, who better to build it than a young 30-something-year-old bald investment
1: banker? A very, very aggressive one who was educated abroad and had all these Western interests, F1 and MMA and all that, but was deeply Chinese at heart in a really down-to-earth, grassroots way. Or at least that's the current narrative. Whether it's true or not, It's written that Baofan was very intentional about building a Jianghu culture at China Renaissance. Jianghu, for our English-speaking
0: listeners, literally means rivers and lakes, but it's the colloquial term for what I'm going to define as gangsta. It's really hard to translate, and there have been multiple articles on this, with professional translators suggesting underworld or brotherhood as options.
1: Yeah, I find it hard pressed to give an English equivalent, but Jianghu is basically this idea that vaguely connotes lawlessness and aggression, with loyalty and relationships at the core though. It's a sort of warlike mentality where you always have to be ready to fight, to do battle, to defend your territory and your honor and also those of your tribe. Sounds kind of like the mob, right? So no surprise then that it's often used to describe the setting of most wuxiao martial arts novels and also to refer to modern day gang culture in China. And why is this important? It's because if you thought this kind of mentality wouldn't be all that popular with entrepreneurs starting China's internet businesses, you'd be wrong. Well, first of all, Don't forget that not all Chinese internet
0: entrepreneurs were nerdy coders. A good number of them, like Alibaba's Jack Ma and JD's Richard Liu, built their empires in a pretty low-tech or even no-tech way. Thus, no surprise that Jianghu is also one of Jack Ma's favorite words as well. He did pick the wuxia theme to be Alibaba's official corporate culture, after all.
1: The love for Jianghu culture is also why Baofan is not known by the more conventional Baozong, which stands for Executive Bao, and is used in almost all business settings in China, but instead insists that his underlings call him bao lao Da, which is like Big Boss Bao, more like what you'd call a thug gang leader. If you guys are into Hong Kong triad movies, you might recognize those words. And just like a real Lao Dao might, Fan is all about taking care of his guys. He said more than once that he's there to serve his employees and that the key to success is to be generous and make sure his people make real money. I don't know if my ex-China Renaissance friends
0: would all agree with that statement, but that Lao Da swagger, the whole I'll take care of everything and everyone attitude – That's the appeal of Jianghu culture. And even more stereotypical engineer founders like Wang Xing of Meituan have a thing for it. If people complain about Silicon Valley being bro-y or fratty or clubby, well, just wait until they do business in China. Baofan himself has admitted it, that if he were not so bro-y, for example, being a huge drinker and very much into using alcohol in his business dealings, he wouldn't
1: have gotten to where he is today. Is this a problem? I don't know. But I certainly wouldn't be able to use those same methods. What I do know is that it's definitely only helped Baofan and not hurt his business. In China, such machismo is very much revered. People love strong leaders and they consider business to be war. They love the brotherhood, comrade in arms metaphor. Didn't Balfan's wife apparently
0: post on her WeChat that Wang Xing and Balfan were such bros that they even filed their IPOs on the same day?
1: Yeah, she did. It's true, but it's a silly comment because the two IPOs are so vastly different in scale. Furthermore, unlike Meituan, which priced at the higher end of expectations, China Renaissance, which was originally rumored to be raising eight hundred million ended up raising less than half of that. And of course, as we already mentioned, tumbled sharply on its first day of trading.
0: Perhaps Ball Fund's expectations were too high. After all, China Renaissance only had $109 million in revenues the first six months of this year and $20 million in operating profit. That's not a huge business, but definitely improving because last year it was still making operating losses.
1: Of those revenues, the majority, or about two-thirds, came from its investment banking business, which includes M&A, IPO advisory, and also IPO underwriting. In M&A, of course, we already know that he's an amazing
0: negotiator. He doesn't just get deals done. He does them in record time. Didi and Kwaidi agreed to a merger in three weeks. Ganji and 58, the most difficult, took six weeks. Meituan and Dianping negotiated their mega-merger in two weeks. Without that deal, I think it's highly unlikely that Meituan would be the $50 billion giant it is today. For one, it wouldn't even be able to think about growth. It would still be spending
1: most of its energy and capital on fighting Dianping. That was the M&A business. The IPO advisory business started in 2011 when Dangdang, a Chinese e-commerce company, went public. And the CEO bitterly complained that bookrunner Morgan Stanley had priced its IPO too low in order to benefit its institutional clients. Now, I'm sure it's not as simple as that. But what happened was that it led other Chinese CEOs who are looking to listen in the U.S. to think, I don't know Wall Street. Who's going to make sure I don't get screwed over in my IPO? Who's going to speak for me and not the bookrunner? That person, of course, was Bao Fan. He became known as the spokesperson for Chinese companies on Wall Street.
0: Underwriting is a relatively new business for Bao Fan. China Renaissance's first IPO underwriting gig was in 2014 for cross-border e-commerce company Light in the Box. Despite having limited experience, Bao Fan was able to convince Richard Liu to let him help underwrite JD's IPO as well. Since then, China Renaissance has participated in something like 70% of China's tech deals. The only marquee deal Balfan has missed
1: is Alibaba's IPO. But it may still yet land Jack Ma's and Financial as a future client. China Renaissance's three IPO cornerstone investors are, you guessed it, Ant Financial, LGT, and a fund called Snow Lake. The firm has also moved into the investment management
0: business. Managing director Wu Bin once boasted, if you turn on your phone, we are investors in half the apps you use. China Renaissance has multiple IPOs this year, including Meituan, of course, and also Tongcheng Ilung, a travel company that's going to list on the HKSE next month. With Baofan's rich deal flow, It makes a lot of sense to adopt this merchant banking model where China Renaissance is not just providing financial advisory services, but also investing capital into its best clients or using investment dollars to turn companies into potential clients. And as of the end of Q1, it already manages $4.1
1: billion. And its third and final business unit is its Huajing Securities unit, which works on A-share IPOs. That unit is still loss-making. Back in 2016, before the stock market crash, and when many of Baofan's good friends, including Qi Hu founder Zhou Hongyi, was looking at privatizing from the U.S. to relist in China, this business seemed like a no-brainer. After the market has gone south, however, it's not necessarily seeming like the best idea. But despite an underperforming IPO... Bao Lao Da is still
0: laughing all the way to the bank. He owns nearly 63% of the listed company, which basically makes him a billionaire. While friend Neil Shen, head of Sequoia China, owns 7.5%. In its 14 years of history, China Renaissance has advised 700 transactions worth over $100 billion U.S. billion and has 600 employees
1: today. Honestly, China Renaissance was the place to work during the late 2000s if you're a tech banker looking to get more exposure to China. Baofeng was, maybe is, the best bridge between the two completely different capital markets. And we quote, A share market
0: is like VC. American equities market is more like PE. That's what Baofeng said before. What does that mean? It means that the companies listing in the US are generally more mature and they're less risky.
1: There are other fundamental differences too. The US is a disclosure-based system, whereas China is more what Balfan calls quote-unquote parental, meaning that the regulatory bodies do far more to protect retail investors. That makes sense though when 85% of the market and by his estimation at least, is retail. Retail investors are not sophisticated. Here in the U.S., however, it's the reverse. We have mostly institutional investors.
0: I agree with that, but I wonder if Balfon is regretting his conclusion in 2016 that asset-light platform businesses are more suitable for the U.S. market, whereas heavier business models such as SaaS or content will find it easier to go public in China. So far this year, at least, most companies, regardless of their model, seem to be rushing to list in the U.S. or Hong Kong.
1: But in other aspects, I think his predictions have turned out to be right. For example, he was famously bearish on crypto, but bullish on blockchain. And that's pretty consistent with where Chinese government policy stands today. And while the A-share business is tough right now, Balfan has leaned heavily into biotech and healthcare starting a few years back, and it seems like that could really pay off. And on the topic of BAT, Balfan had this
0: to say. Alibaba needs traffic as input, whereas both Baidu and Tencent have traffic as output. This fundamental difference determines how the three invest and consider investment opportunities. It also affects how he advises his clients. And he's always taken the side of the startup
1: entrepreneur. That attitude has taken him to be a billionaire banker. We'll see how much farther it takes him. We'd like to give a shout out to our partner, Subchina. In addition to our podcast here with Pandaily, they publish the excellent Seneca podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs on China with journalists, writers, academics, policymakers, and business people. And Seneca has been adding steadily to its growing podcast network.
0: There's New Voices, which features women, as well as the new China Econ Talk. And of course, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief. Check these out wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, as always. We've really enjoyed putting this together, and we're always open to any comments or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at the ThePanDaily, at TechBuzzChina, and my
1: personal Twitter account is G-I-N-Y, G-I-N-Y. And my Twitter is spelled R-U-I-M-A. We'll be back here same time next week. Tech Buzz China by PanDaily is powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. Pandaily.com is an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Bonnie Zhang and Kaiser Kuo. Our intern is Wang Li.